Hello everyone, and welcome to Downsizing, the podcast where we try and figure out when The Office actually ended, because everyone would have been fired. My name is Curtis, and I'll be your host, and with me is my co-host and resident office expert, Antoinette. Hi everyone. Today we will be discussing Season 4, Episode 4, Money. In this episode, Michael has money problems. Jim and Pam go on a romantic getaway, and a new love triangle has formed. This episode's cold open really plays up Michael's love of movies and kind of acting like his life is a movie. Yes, Michael gets his Netflix DVDs delivered to the office, and he watches them in little segments when it's slow, which is sort of crazy to think about could possibly be a firing and currently he is watching the devil wears prada because he's a big meryl streep fan so he identifies with meryl streep's character as sort of an anna wintour uh knockoff at a fashion magazine she's the editor at a fashion magazine so he really treats pam very poorly he treats pam like meryl streep's character treats her assistant in the movie until the very end where he finally watches the end of the movie and he realizes that, in his words, Meryl Streep was the bad guy all along. Never saw it coming. And then he... So in his apology to Pam, he calls her Matushka. And this really confuses Pam as to why he would say that. And she figures out that he is just saying it wrong. I can't remember what the actual... Maybe Makushla? Sure. And now he's on to Million Dollar Baby. Which I've only seen once. I did not remember that as a reference from that movie. I have seen neither of these movies. Oh, you've never seen Devil Wears Prada? Never seen Devil Wears Prada. I've never seen Million Dollar Baby. I don't foresee myself rushing out to watch Million Dollar Baby, especially. Devil Wars Prada is really good. I really like Meryl Streep, and she's very good in that role. I mean, she's good in pretty much every role, but she makes the movie. I think otherwise it wouldn't be so, like, iconic. And funnily enough, John Krasinski's wife, current wife Emily Blunt, also stars in Devil Wears Prada, but I don't think they had met at this point. I assume she is not... She has a different role other than... Um, Anne Hathaway. Yeah, Anne Hathaway. Correct. Okay. All right. Just making sure you did not confuse those two. No. Because I could see where that might happen. Oh, yeah. Other than the fact that, like, Emily Blunt is British, they look similar. Anne Hathaway and Emily Blunt both play assistants to Meryl Streep. Got it. We open the main part of this episode with Michael and Jan in... Michael's office and they appear to be redecorating Michael's condo and they're picking out carpet colors and colors for furniture and things like that Mm -hmm. and Michael keeps bringing up how much is this going to cost he seems to be very concerned about the fact that they're doing all of these things and that the costs on this are adding up and Jan is just continuously dismissing him on this. It seems like a pretty extensive renovation that Jan is undertaking here, probably because she doesn't really have a lot else to fill her days. 
and she really is very dismissive of Michael's concerns, saying that it costs what it costs, which is not a way to go into a home renovation project unless you are a millionaire and truly do have an unlimited budget because there is a home renovation project for every budget. Michael also notes that they are down to one car, which is odd because his car is a corporate lease. So sort of a plot loophole there. I had that thought too, because he said that they sold both cars in order for them to get a Porsche because that's what Jan wanted. Yeah. And I don't know how Michael was going to sell the company car. And I would have to assume that Jan also had a corporate lease and then would have lost that upon being fired. So sort of some, some yeah, writing loopholes there. But Jan wanted a Porsche, so now they're sharing a car. The problem with that is Michael needs to get to, quote, improv right after the workday. So the day that we start this episode on is somewhere in the middle of the week. It's definitely not a Friday. It was certainly an odd choice by the writers for reasons that we will see later. Yeah. Um, in, in, in watching this episode, I definitely had that thought where it's like, why is this a Tuesday? Mm-hmm. Like, this seems like some of this should have been on, like, Friday. Mm-hmm. A weekend, yeah. Right. So, Michael heads off to improv. And we learn pretty much immediately that Michael is not at improv. He is at his second job, which is doing telemarketing sales, essentially. Uh, What sounds like a diet pill. Mm -hmm. And this definitely seems to be kind of an embarrassment for Michael initially when, like just kind of in the scope of the show, it is another one of those kind of gotcha moments that they have here and there where we are seeing this through the eyes of the documentary filmmakers where they find Michael at this job and he's just kind of like uh 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 yeah they seemingly like followed him getting on the bus and then going to there which side note Curtis don't you think there would have been easier side gigs for Michael to find to make money at I mean, of course, but ones that have the hours flexibility that Michael would have needed and also kind of fits in his wheelhouse, if you will, of sales, I think that, yeah, that kind of limited his his options. Because at first he tries to play off to the camera crew that he doesn't get to do enough selling as a manager, so he really picked up this job as a hobby. But as it goes on, we really do see that this is needed income. And it's a commission-based job, which I guess means you can earn quite a bit if you're making good sales and you earn minimum wage against the commission. But Michael struggles at this job. Which is kind of a surprise because as we have said before, Michael does appear to be a competent salesman, Mm -hmm. if anything, at Dunder Mifflin like that like we have said that is 
definitely the reason why he was promoted to regional manager in the first place is because he was a good salesman. Mm -hmm. I would say, though, that Michael is living the life at the telemarketing job that he wishes he was living at Dunder Mifflin. Explain. Well, at one point, Michael's manager calls a conference room meeting for the whole office and Michael says to the cameras like well these are useless which of course is ironic yeah, because irony. yeah Michael's conferences almost 100% are useless this one does not appear to be as useless the manager is going over just saying hey follow the script you'll make sales mm-hmm. and Michael just kind of throws in a little quip of, you know, oh, that was pretty inspirational. And everybody starts laughing. And so, like, he is, he's Jim now in this scenario. Oh, good point. Yeah. And so later on, Michael is talking about Die Hard 4. And he's talking about how different John McClane is from Die Hard 1. And he has these people, like, captivated about what he's talking about to the point they're like, man, you should review movies like this is such a fun thing and so like he has the attention here that he seeks at dunder mifflin that's a really good point he really does and the people ask him to get a beer at the end of the night which is like everything that he wants he really wants to have dinner with jim and pam he wants to go get drinks with his co-workers so yeah that's a really good point Now, Michael is not very successful at sticking to the script, just saying the lines, and trying to make the sale. And we see why he is having sort of these in-depth conversations with the people that pick up the phone. Yeah, Michael is very much a people person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have seen this before, like two episodes ago, when Michael is handing out the gift baskets and he goes to that law firm or whatever it is and he's like hey how's your daughter she should be about this age now is she still you know talking to so and so and blah 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 and so like he is good at that he is good at building relationships Mm -hmm. and as the manager in at the telemarketing company says to him it's like that's not what this is about you are losing money this is about Mm -hmm. getting in making your pitch and moving on to the next person that's how money is made in this business. And the top salesman at uh, this telemarketing firm is a man named Vikram, and he'll come back around uh, next season, actually. Michael doesn't get done with his second job shift until about 1 a.m., and Jan has to come pick him up, and she didn't even go to her yoga class, which is why she had to have the car for that night. And she's actually drank too much wine, so Michael needs to drive them home. Which 1 a.m. for sales calls, it's sort of nuts. Like, no one's answering their phone, at least locally, that we know. Yeah, it appears that this has to be, like, a national position just based out of Scranton. Because even 1 a.m. Scranton time is still 10 o'clock in like west coast time mm-hmm. so that's late there so like they're probably calling people in like alaska and hawaii too yeah it'd be 8 p.m in hawaii 
at that point. So just sort of, it's sort of odd. The next day, Michael's dragging from his late, late night shift. And Ryan comes in because he has asked Michael to put together a PowerPoint presentation to teach the office about PowerPoint. Which, ugh, PowerPoint. <laughs> this, is, like, this to me seems silly. Like, I, they don't really go into it at all. But this is more, I think, just Ryan leaning into technology, technology, technology. Like the yes. he, they very vaguely allude to why everybody needs to learn this, and so they can make presentations to customers. Which are they really making PowerPoint presentations about how many reams of paper someone make? Maybe right, but like any. Any sales call that we have seen, like face to face, is always like at somebody's desk. Yes. There is no like, hey, we're gonna need you at the conference room and we're gonna set all this stuff up. Like they don't do a full thing, which honestly, though, in like in terms of like real life, that's how it that's generally how it works. Like anytime I when I used to work at a hospital, we would have some we'd have a drug rep come in and these meetings were pointless for me mm-hmm. and honestly probably even for the nurses that I worked with because it was for a drug that we already used. Right, you didn't need that info. Yeah, they weren't trying to sell us on anything. They were just updating us. But we got a free lunch out of it. Right. So, uh, of course I went. And so like generally that's how things go though. Like you, you know, somebody comes in they bring, uh, you know, they provide lunch or provide like some snacks or whatever, and they have a PowerPoint presentation. So this isn't that far off base, but from what we have seen in this show already, and really what we will see any other time, any sales pitch is, that has ever happened is it like a face-to-face desk situation. Yeah, and maybe Ryan is trying to lean into making the Dunder Mifflin sales force a little bit more like you were describing where you are maybe pitching to a larger group or really drilling down into their needs and then putting that in a PowerPoint presentation. It's just interesting that so PowerPoint was not new at this time. This is 2007. PowerPoint had been around probably at least for five years, I want to say, because I was using it in junior high. Here's the problem with PowerPoint. A lot of people don't know how to properly use it for a presentation. You don't put everything that you're going to say on the slides. And that's where you have to put time into a presentation so that you make the PowerPoint, but you also have to make notes for yourself that you're just putting little bits of tidbits of information or you know, a heading or something like that. And then you're giving an oral presentation because otherwise all you need to do is hand out slides then. Yeah, PowerPoint should be the accessory or the outline to your presentation, not your entire presentation. Yeah, and that's where I find particularly, and I'm not picking on anybody, but particularly in the older crowd who maybe weren't trained on PowerPoint, they do it all in. If you've ever been to a conference, 
and someone who, who's presenting who doesn't present a lot, it's literally their entire presentation and a lot of transition special effects, which are very rooted in the early 2000s. We don't need a, you know, the whole slide dissolving or a, a special sound effect uh, for it. So it's just, it's just funny uh, that that's how it goes. And now with, you know, virtual work, you can do presentations over Zoom, over Microsoft Teams, things like that. So they still do have a place. They just probably be used uh, properly. That's all I'll say. So that does it for our analysis on PowerPoint. Sorry. Back to the episode. Um, Michael does not know how to use PowerPoint, and not in the way that Antoinette just described. He literally just doesn't know how to use it. He has never opened the program. And so this kind of bothers Ryan in that, yes, he, Michael, has not, clearly has not prepared anything and as Michael says, he wasn't going to get it anyway. <laughs> and that was the assignment from Ryan. Like, that's what Michael was supposed to do. And so Ryan gets very upset with Michael because this was supposed to be, like Antoinette said, a PowerPoint presentation about PowerPoint. <laughs> and Michael says, I'm sorry, I just am very busy with my other job. I didn't have time to do this. And this is the first time that anybody is hearing about Michael's other job, which is kind of weird because he was very forthright with it, whereas before he was very secretive about it. I think he was too tired at that point. Possible, yeah. And so Ryan is kind of questioning him, like, why do you have another job? And he doesn't make it seem like that is a problem, just to the effect that he can't have another job if it affects the performance at Dunder Mifflin. Mm -hmm. And Michael's like, no, it won't, I promise. And Ryan's like, it already has right here. And the conference room meeting like escalates to a point with everybody, not just between Ryan and Michael, but with everyone sort of piling in a little bit on Ryan. To where Ryan says, if you don't quit the second job, you're fired from Dunder Mifflin. So Michael has to go in and resign uh, from the sales company. And he's really building it up in his head as something that's going to be worse than what he thinks. He says he's never done this before, which I don't think that's wholly true. But he is also not really living in the reality. Like he's still portraying to the documentary crew that this was part of his dream. His dream was to have this great job at Dunder Mifflin, the second job that he really loved, having a girlfriend, but he just couldn't do it. The problem is he realizes that he really needed the money from that second job, even if it maybe wasn't bringing in a lot. And now he has to find a way to replace that income. He first goes to Kevin and asks Kevin, who is an avid gambler, if Kevin knows of anything, any sure bets, any you know boxers who are down on their luck that made deals with the wrong people and are going to throw a fight. If Kevin knows of anything like that and Kevin says no and Michael's like, do you know who I could talk to for that? And Kevin says the mob. <laughs> this really gets everyone in the office talking. So they're eating lunch in the break room. 
and people are sort of gossiping about why Michael would have a second job. And Stanley hits it on the nose saying Jan's probably spending him to the poorhouse, which is really accurate. That's exactly what is happening. Michael comes in and people kind of point blank ask him, do you have money problems? He tries to deflect again, but when it comes down to it, he really can't deny it. Now, Creed is the one that gives him the idea that bankruptcy is like nature's do-over. Yeah, Creed tells him, declare bankruptcy, everything's good, slate's clean, you can start over. Oscar is in the room with them, and Oscar says that, no, this is not true at all. And so Michael goes about declaring bankruptcy, and he does it in a very Michael way in which he just steps out into the office and yells to everyone that he declares bankruptcy. And so Oscar meets with him later and says, you know, that's not how that works, right? And he and Michael sit down and just go over Michael's finances, where he is spending money, what he is spending money on, how much he is spending. And so Oscar ends up giving Michael a PowerPoint presentation on his budget. I was going to point that out where I'm like, most of the people based on Oscar probably already know how to use PowerPoint. Unfortunately for Michael, Jan is not the only member of the couple that spends frivolously. Oscar has broken it down into essentials, wants, and then a big scary black bar representing purchases that no one needs, including multiple magic sets, a core blaster thing. And so there's just a lot of unnecessary spending that's happening by both Michael and Jan. But Michael does not want Jan brought into this conversation. Now, the problem is Jan's got access to his credit card. We also see just kind of the lovable oaf side of Michael here during this presentation because during this whole time that Oscar is talking to him about this, Michael's only observations are that it's really cool that he put Michael's name on the header of this graph and he asks if this is PowerPoint. And so clearly Michael is not getting it. He is not, you know, getting the correct information from this. He's focusing on the wrong things. Right. And so Oscar eventually convinces Michael that he has to have this difficult conversation with Jan, that they have to talk about their finances. And Jan's immediate reaction to this conversation is, so you're broke? And Michael really just does not know how to react to these, to Jan's questioning. And he makes a run for it. And what really is just upsetting is how Jan will take no responsibility for this spending at all and really attacks Michael as though she's not spending all of the one income that they have coming in. And you would think that Jan's job prospects are not bad. Like she had a you know corporate job at Dunder Mifflin in New York. Like she, you would think she would have a decent resume to present to. 
even getting just a, a middle management job somewhere else like Michael has. Yeah, that's where we're stretching the bounds a little bit here. And I'm not saying that anyone that worked at a corporate level of a company is going to be great with money or finance, but both Michael and Jan are sort of being caricatured here a bit. You're telling me that Jan has no ability, no personal finance acumen at all to understand this or understand like, oh, wow, we're kind of spending a lot. You know, part of, I'm going to guess part of her job at corporate overseeing these different branches dealt with the money side of things. And I think this really just comes back to what we have talked about on this podcast before of Jan's character just getting a bad rap in terms of development. Like before she is portrayed as this competent strong independent female executive and we are now into the part of jan's crazy and gets drunk a lot and is just sleeps all day yeah so michael is going to just run away on a freight train essentially uh unfortunately the train that was the last stop they're in this rail yard um pretty close to the office jan runs and finds him there and she does say that she has these very sweet things to say to Michael now is it the most like healthy basis for their relationship probably not but what it boils down to is that Jan and Michael are really all each other has right now Jan says that when she got fired she really kind of hit rock bottom and she went through a pretty tough series of events with her divorce getting fired sort of going off the rails a bit in her in her personal and professional life it sounds like her family has abandoned her a bit on the advice of counsel so I'm not really sure uh, what she's referring to with that she said her friends were just waiting for this to happen and the only person that was there for her was Michael so she's not going to give up on him just because he's broke, which again, sort of absconding all responsibility for any part of their spending. And Michael, when when the rest of the members of the office ask, why don't you guys sit down and talk about this? Michael says, you know, you don't talk about money with, with your partner. It's very unsexy. But if they're going to be in like a live-in relationship and they're going to they're going to subsist on a single income they really do need to have that conversation and so we don't really see it in this episode but where this conversation ends is essentially a you know we're going to stick together for better or worse type deal but there is no conversation about how they're going to make the worse better it's essentially they're just like well we're two (laughs) screw-ups and we're in it together I guess that's just how it is. And like, there's no, like Jan was willing to run away with Michael. There was no like, okay, no, we can't do that. We have to address this thing going on here. Mm -hmm. And so with the rest of the episode, we kind of see, like we have said in previous episodes of this season, where the writer's strike kind of has its effect on the framing of the episodes and how things are put together because the plot with Michael's money issues 
and him working a second job is probably enough for one episode. And that's probably how it was shot to be. And then we now have two other plots that get thrown into this episode that probably would have been an episode on their own. I'm also going to guess that some of the scenes of Michael at the, um, the weight loss selling agency probably would have maybe been deleted scenes, but they had to really fill this 42 minute runtime just because they sort of, they're funny. They, but they drag on. Like there's a scene of him talking with Vikram and they're eating their dinner for the night. And then there's a scene of him, like Curtis said, talking about the plot of Die Hard versus the plot of Die Hard 4. And then there's the conference room scene. Like we get quite a bit at this, uh, at his second job that we may not have gotten if we were in a tight 22 minute runtime. So what we also see in this episode is Jim and Pam going on a romantic getaway. And the seeds of this are planted when Dwight answers a phone call like he normally would just saying Dwight Schrute Dunder Mifflin and he puts somebody on hold and he kind of adjusts himself and greets somebody as if he was working at a hotel and we learn that Dwight is essentially running a bed and breakfast out of his farm Schrute Farms but he doesn't like it to be called a bed and breakfast. He says it's agro-tourism. Jim is immediately intrigued by what's happening. Also, Pam is. And Pam calls Dwight's phone and says she'd like to book a room. TripAdvisor has some pretty good reviews. And Dwight's interest is really piqued by this because he says TripAdvisor is the lifeblood of the agro-tourism industry. And that's what he describes his experience as. It's not a bed and breakfast. It's this full farm experience. So Jim and Pam book a room at Shroot Farms for literally that evening, it seems like. (laughs) And they head out there and... Dwight, we know, has 60 acres, so it's quite a bit of land, but it really is its own sort of time capsule, you could say. And he has three rooms to offer, each with their own theme. The themes are irrigation, America, and nighttime. Jim and Pam select the irrigation room, and really all it is is just a room that has a lot of like pipes and spouts put on the walls and the ceilings as sort of decor and I have to imagine that America has a lot of Americana sort of decor and nighttime might have stars and telescopes in the moon or something I would guess and we are shown some of the details of their stay we see Dwight kind of mashing up some beets with Moe's and offering you know tastes to Jim and Pam he's making a beet wine yeah No. They are given a tour of the barn. There is a table-making demonstration. But really, most of the interesting points come when they are going to bed. Earlier, Jim had requested that they be read a bedtime story, and Dwight refused. However, we do see him reading Harry Potter to Jim and Pam, 
and Mose, who also is creepily in the room. <laughs> Which Harry Potter is this, dear? Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Okay. Later in the episode, we also see them being awakened by a loud banging noise. And Pam is brave enough to go try and find out what it is. And it is Mose who is in the outhouse, but he didn't like latch the door. So the door is just blowing open and banging. And Pam questions what century this is. A little bit later, Jim and Pam are awakened again by this just really loud moaning sound that seems to be coming from one of the other rooms. Jim goes to knock on Dwight's door and Dwight, thinking it's Moe's, tells him to come in, thinking that Moe's has had another nightmare. Jim walks in and he sees that Dwight is sitting on the edge of the bed, just looking at this cherub figurine and, and wailing uh, in despair. And they kind of, they have this conversation where Jim says, oh, I, th- I thought I heard this sound. And Dwight's like, oh, no, I don't hear anything, but thank you for bringing this to the attention of the staff. I'll investigate in the morning. We hope that your that your stay is satisfactory. So he's being professional and as his B&B uh, keeper sense. And Jim says, okay, you know, good night, Dwight. And as soon as he shuts the door, the, the wailing starts again. And Jim gives sort of a voiceover to the documentary crew as we just see these flashes of all the activities that they did on the farm. He notes that it's his first night away with Pam. And this really is not how he envisioned it at all. He did not envision Dwight being involved, there being that many beats, that much manure. But it really seems like they had a fun time and something extremely local and they're helping out, helping out Dwight. Now we learn that Dwight's wailing is is connected to Angela. He's still really, really upset about their breakup. And at the beginning of the episode, we see them exchanging items. So, you know, at the end of a relationship, you give back the, the things that you had of your exes. And so she asks about that chair of figurine. And he says that, nope, I don't have it. You already took it. But he's clearly holding on to it. At this point, Andy kind of enters the picture and is really making it known to other people that he is interested in Angela. He goes up to Pam's desk and and seemingly trying to get kind of a female perspective on things. He says that he has been moonwalking past Angela's desks like all day today and she hasn't noticed him at all and he's just trying to get kind of advice as to what he can do to you know make this happen and Dwight is standing right behind Pam you know faxing something or or whatever and Pam kind of takes this into account he knowing that Dwight is in earshot of all of this, knowing that this is hard for Dwight, she tries to talk Andy out of pursuing Angela. But for every point that she makes, Andy has a response that kind of makes sense. 
Yes. For instance, Pam says, you know, Angela's really religious. Andy says, well, I'm from a long line of wasps that can traced that can be traced back to Moses. So, okay, that that point's gone. Well, she takes her convictions pretty seriously. Andy's response, I punched a hole in the wall. And Pam thinks about it more, and she just says, okay, well, she's telling the camera crew, maybe Andy and Angela would make a good couple, but she says she couldn't do that to Dwight or Angela or Andy. So she's realizing how sort of insufferable in different ways all three of these individuals like really are. The breaking point for Dwight in this episode comes when Andy gives a gift to Angela and he includes a note with it saying that this cat showed up at the office for her and especially for her. And so Angela comes over to Andy's desk carrying the cat and says, you may take me to dinner. And that's too much for Dwight. He immediately gets up and he leaves the office. That's the cat that Dwight tried to give to Angela. He's sort of abandoned by Vance Refrigeration and that's where Andy found it at. But Angela's also being extremely mean. She knows what she's doing, telling that to Andy in front of Dwight and looking at him first. She's going about this in the just cruelest way possible. So Dwight goes to the stairwell and he's moaning again, just like he was at his farm. And Jim comes to find him and he tells Dwight why he had to leave Scranton and just how miserable he was seeing Pam with Roy. And Jim says he was just absolutely miserable and he wouldn't wish that on anyone not even his worst enemy, not even Dwight. And that's pretty meaningful. Dwight really needed that pick-me-up in that moment, but it also serves to Jim as this sort of eye-opening moment that he actually is in love with Pam. But it serves as exactly the salve that Dwight needs at this moment, and he comes back into the office, and he's ready to make some sales. And he also gets bolstered by this really nice review that Jim and Pam left on TripAdvisor about their stay at Shroot Farms. So Curtis, a stray observation here that didn't really fit with one of the big themes of this episode is that Daryl and Kelly are sort of a thing, but only when Kelly wants to make Ryan jealous. And Kelly is really going hard on the crazy. At one point during the PowerPoint presentation conference, Ryan's just like, wait a minute, why is Daryl here? He works in the warehouse. He doesn't need to hear any of this. And at that point, all that had happened was Michael going over essentially how to start your computer, get to the start menu, get and open up PowerPoint. He had done no like finite instruction about the ins and outs of PowerPoint. And Daryl is just like, yeah, you're right. I don't need to hear any of this. And so he gets up to leave and Kelly's just like, no, I invited him. It's like, he can be here. And Ryan's like, this isn't a party. You don't, that's not how this works. And so Daryl is leaving and Kelly's like, oh, okay, well, I'll see you tonight. And Daryl just goes, I got plans tonight. <laughs> like doesn't miss a beat. 
Kelly then goes to Daryl's office uh, later in the episode and says, you have plans? What are they? And Daryl has his daughter that evening. And Kelly really leans into the crazy and she's like, you need to make a choice. It's either your daughter or me. Again, not missing a beat, not even looking up at her. He says, my daughter. Kelly is just really nuts here. Daryl has a conversation with her later He says, I like you, but you need to tap into your non-crazy side here or else maybe this thing has run its course. And Kelly's not used to having an adult relationship like that. He also calls her out and saying as to why this relationship is a thing, and it's to make Ryan jealous. He, He confronts her about that as well. That's true, where he's like, you only call me when Ryan's gonna be in the office. So they clearly have an attraction, but Daryl is is really being the adult here and being like, I don't need this. And Kelly's used to a relationship, one, she's used to being with Ryan to where it's at his whim only, but she's also used to crazy games and not just being real with your feelings. So... This is, it was just a funny, like just a very good comedic performance by Craig Robinson. So that's pretty much all that happens of note in this episode. So let's go to the annex with Antoinette and find out any fun facts about this episode. Not too many. There is an actual entry on TripAdvisor, which I don't think is that popular anymore. I think Yelp has sort of taken over that realm. But there's an actual entry for Shroot Farms and Jim and Pam's review is on there. This episode was written and directed by Paul Lieberstein, who plays Toby, and he actually received an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Direction of a Comedy Series for this episode, which is kind of interesting given our perception and review of it. Curtis, do we have any firings? We do. Uh, We lose Michael here because... When he enters the break room, as everybody is kind of talking about his money problems, everybody kind of does that thing when the person you were talking about enters the room. Everybody just stops talking altogether. And Michael's like, what are we talking about? Are we talking about Jim and Pam and what it looks like when they're doing it and blah, 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 not knowing that Pam is right there. And so that's definitely inappropriate. Um, So Michael would be fired for that. It's his third firing this season. It's his 29th overall. We also lose Andy because when he goes to Pam's desk to kind of get the female perspective of things, he says that he's been up all night thinking about Angela's rockin' bod. Yeah, Andy's really just gross and crass about dating, about most things, but it's, it's over the top. So this is Andy's first firing this season. It's his second firing overall. This, that reminds me though, is that something we alluded to earlier, that for some reason, all of this happens on a Tuesday or Wednesday, like in the middle of the week. Why? And I get that they had to show Michael going into work, but why Jim and Pam wouldn't have booked their stay on a Saturday? Because it looks like they're, like they're d- doing daytime stuff, which it would be early evening by the time they got there. 
unless yes. they left work early or like what. The like the timeline doesn't make any sense yeah. at all. And then they go to work the next day. Yes, like and so, from and, farm. and we see Michael, Jim, and Pam all kind of struggling because the nights, the previous night was rough for all of them. Yes, exactly. It was just one of those like time jump things or time extensions where you're like, no, that doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, Random point there, but yeah. uh, do you have a Dundee to give out? Yes. The Dundee for the best reasoning to decline plans goes to Michael and Jim and Pam ask Michael to have dinner knowing that he said he's already busy. Michael says he's can't he's really really torn up because he wants to have this dinner with Jim and Pam and Jim asks what he's so busy with Michael says it's a secret you wouldn't understand and so I think that is the reasoning you should give if you ever need to say why you can't do something it's a secret you wouldn't understand that's why I'm busy what is your Dundee semi-related to that the two-faced award goes to Jim and Pam yes. for the really dick move that they make there of knowing Michael is busy and being like, oh, we really wanted to have dinner with you. Oh, that's too bad. We're busy all the other times. And like, that's their effort. Like, there's like, oh, oh no, well, well, so we mean. tried. We tried. I guess we're not going to try again because we really don't want to do this thing. But also that when they book going to Dwight's farm, like this isn't a this isn't a nice thing that they're doing for Dwight. They're there to like make fun of it and see how crazy yeah. it all is. And like Dwight's probably worked hard at this and he is invested in this and he is trying to make this an actual thing and they're there to just make fun of it the whole time. That's kind of true, yeah. But they turn around and they put the nice review on TripAdvisor even if there are some kind of just like backhanded compliments in it and Jim does go and kind of console Dwight and and try and help him there yeah the friendship this friendship between the three of them is sort of budding here and it has starts and stops I would say throughout the series but this is kind of an up for for just the friendship of amongst the three of them who is your employee of the month I chose Oscar because he genuinely was trying to help Michael. He already knew how to do PowerPoint, so he was ahead of the game there. And he seems to know a good amount about personal finance. I mean, he is in accounting. Who is your employee of the month? I chose Dwight because, you know, he has established this bed and breakfast business that he has. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the episode, we do kind of see him get his his mojo back. Mm-hmm. You know, we see him struggling throughout the episode. And then after this pep talk from Jim, like he is back to being the Dwight that we know. You know, he, he gets right on the phone to make a sales call. Jim's desk is a mess as usual. And it kind of has some things like cascading over Dwight's desk and Dwight just takes his ruler and clears all that stuff out. And in a, in a sense that Jim would normally, normally be annoyed by this, he just kind of has this smirk on his face of like, yep, there he, like, there he is. He's back. That's, that's what I wanted to see. So yeah, Dwight does kind of get some, some strength back in this episode. 
poor Dwight. It really sucks to be going through something like a breakup that only time can really help you heal with. Especially in this situation where the person you broke up with, you see literally every single day. And who's being a jerk. Like, now in 2020, she would have, I don't know, if if she had social media, she would have posted all over social media about having, like, a new boyfriend or something. But she's being a real callous jerk on purpose to sort of stick it to Dwight. So that does it for this week's episode. Please follow us on Twitter at DownsizingPod to get all the latest updates. And be sure to continue listening to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you are listening to us. Please rate, subscribe, comment, wherever you can in order to continue to get our name out there. We appreciate you guys listening. We hope you are staying safe. And we will talk to you guys next time. Bye. Bye.